My heart says yes, my daddy says no. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, so that's apparently, yeah, it's really awesome. big. big room. Tēnā everybody, and welcome to 76 Small Rooms, a podcast about architecture from Aotearoa, New Zealand. I'm Jeremy, I'm here with Tash, Arch and Matt. And in this episode, we're talking to the fantastic Canadian, now London architect, Alison Brooks, who visited New Zealand, we'll say recently, even though it wasn't quite short recent anymore, um, because it's taken us a while to edit this. Um, she visited New Zealand to speak at the New Zealand Institute of Architects in situ conference. And what I found fascinating about her talk is that she's done this beautiful work in the UK, um, inserted into quite classical London streetscapes, assertively modern buildings that seem to still fit in beautifully. Um, she's also done a lot of really interesting um, medium density housing. But the thing that stood out most in her talk was that she made a really strong case for beauty in architecture, which is something I haven't heard an architect do, perhaps mm. ever. Mm. At least not in a public forum. Mm-hmm. Can I ask the three of you why beauty is kind of out of fashion in architecture and whether it's coming back in, thanks to Alison Brooks? Because it's I, subjective. I, That's what was being taught. It's kind of, you can't argue on the basis of beauty, because then, you know, what's beauty? Um, I don't necessarily agree with that. Mm-hmm. And she talks about it being a modernist hangover. But that's, I think, that part of my education anyhow. Why do you? I, I think it's still part of the modernist hangover. I mean, ornament is a crime, mm. a rejection of perhaps the classical uh, ways of, of going about putting a building together and, and putting a city together too. Mm. But perhaps, um, uh, you know, like everything, the pendulum is starting to mm. swing the other way and there is a renewed interest in beauty, perhaps as an antidote to some of the other um, things that are happening in, in life in the world. It's funny, in that Alison Brooks works in social housing and um, and medium density housing, done some other things as well, obviously, but um, interesting that that's the vehicle with which beauty might be sort of re-injected into the architecture. Mm. It'd be quite good. I think it's just a really great kind of beating stick people like to take to contemporary architecture, so it gets lots of legs. Um, I saw Stefan Sagmeister's talk at Webstock, um, which, among many other things, was a cry against... Was It was an argument for beauty, and he, he put up heaps of images of cities and he started with Corb's cruciform apartments sort of going across the whole landscape and kind of, um, he was railing against the city as he sees it and argue, you know, why do we not return to this beauty? People love those kinds of talks because there's no shortage of sheer-faced, curtain-walled buildings that can kind of support that sort of argument. And Well, the interesting thing about Alison Brooks's talk is that she's very firmly, I would argue, a modernist. Mm. And so she's arguing for a modernist conception of beauty as well. She's not talking about classical ornamentation or no. um, no. prettying things up mm. no. in that sort of sense. It's, it's, a, it's a new notion of beauty where I guess a lot of people would not necessarily see it, but I'm sure seeing her buildings, very few people would describe them as ugly. Yeah, mm. and, and it's, um, you know, she's so... Um, spectacularly talented in so many different kind of core strengths you know sustainability fluency with developers heritage context you know mm. so you know I think when you have that level of skill the achievement of beauty um, I'm not going to say it's easier 
but you're kind of well equipped to kind of deliver really intrinsic beauty in the design process as opposed to a thing you have to kind of argue for later. I think along with that idea of beauty is that idea of care. She goes at length to talk about the importance of windows and, and perhaps entrances mm. in, in buildings. And, and I agree with you. I mean, her work is, is very modern, but she understands the importance of, you know, that first impression of a building, the dignity of having a proper entrance, even though you might live in a social house, and what that means, an expression of volume, the you know, feel of your... Um, the door handle underneath your hand, mm. and and I think to me that is is where the, the discussion of beauty is at. at. It's as much about care um, in the way that we detail and um, and uh, build these things, um, more so than perhaps a classical notion of a you know fully highly or- ornamented mm-hmm. um, doorway. Mm. Uh, the thing that really struck me. Because she's a commercial architect and she's working with developers, and that I knew about her project, the Newhall um, Estate, before I knew who had done it. Um, but that you sort of look at that scheme, you think that's yeah, fantastic, it's a beautiful thing. But actually, that that whole thing happened because, and she talks about this in the interview, happened because she was able to get more eight more eight more mm. houses on the site and, and approaching it in a commercial and intelligent way and achieving better outcomes because I think really you know shining light for architects I think is um, really amazing work. Yeah she seemed to be able to help developers achieve their commercial aims without sacrificing a shred of mm. architectural integrity mm. which is probably a good point to um, to start the interview and um, let our listeners hear Alison Brooks so here she is. So Alison thank you for talking to us welcome to New Zealand and to 76 small rooms. I was thinking as I watched your talk about a comment by a man who's now our Prime Minister last year where he said that in order to deal with New Zealand's housing shortage, people had to tolerate a little bit more ugliness in our built environment. Um, I'd like to put that theory to you and ask whether you agree or not. Wow, that's that's really tragic. That's what he thinks. Um, that's in in a way that um, signifies the problem with the expectation of developer-led housing or higher density housing that somehow we should assume that it will be ugly. You know that that's a kind of sad indictment of the profession. Actually, it reminds me a little bit of another thing the taxi driver said when I was driving in from the airport and we were talking about the housing crisis and we were talking about the beautiful Victorian housing and then he started talking about the higher density stuff and he said, you know, if there was a new kind of ugly, they'd find a way of doing it. <laughs> and, and that's what... <laughs> and that just came, um, you know, straight from the horse's mouth. You can't get any one more honest and direct about architecture than taxi drivers. I, I think... Um, you know, somehow that expectation of kind of um, banality and um, lack of beauty is something that I think we as a profession have to very much resist and fight against and in a way prove that we can do better than that. And in particular, I think developers need to understand that they also can't um, get away with that and in a way 
the um, responsibility and the role of planning departments and design review panels becomes crucial in that scenario to ensure that standards of design, you know, of not just space standards, but, and, you know, quantity of light and preventing overshadowing and all those kind of, you know, measurable things are accompanied by a, a qualitative evaluation of the architecture and the materials it's made of and the the kind of ideas and the intentions that inform the architecture make it meaningful and hopefully make it beautiful. Do you think housing at that sort of um, mass scale, the medium density, higher density, has fallen into a bit of a, a rut? We've seen changes in terms of um, uh, lot sizes and so on, but the, a lot of the housing that's still being built is, is very much the same model and I think there's a tension there because often it doesn't fit the ideals that we had about the suburbs can't be delivered through the types of housing that are still being built. Um, is, do you, I notice that your work sort of interrogates some of those ideas. Yes, well I think there, there are still um, huge challenges in terms of suburban development. Um, Again, it's it's about land values and it's about the um, sort of permissible change of use of land from farmland to housing land um, and whether that's allowed. I don't know if you have sort of green belt policies or things like that in New Zealand that sort of stop sprawl or, you know, prevent sort of wasteful, low-density, overbuilt... We have uh, until they become inconvenient. Yes, they right. Get okay, <laughs> or, or some kind of tax, um, yeah. you know, property taxes and stuff that feed the <laughs> city coffers start <laughs> coming into account. But I think there is the um, potential of cities and the, really the necessity of um, city governments to actually, you know, set restrictions and and set new standards. I, like in, for example, in London, the mayor's housing design guide that Boris Johnson put in place about ten years ago, it completely changed the standard of housing development in London because he set minimum space standards and minimum floor to ceiling height. You can't get planning permission, actually, for a scheme in London lower than two point five meters. But they, then they say they recommend two point six and two point seven on the ground floors or higher because you know ground floors of buildings get the least light but it's sort of optional so of course it's not done but because it's set in stone that you won't get planning permission unless you provide 2.5 meter ceiling heights everybody complies and mm. you know developers still develop and they still make money and it, you know so it just takes a sort of certain qualitative standards to be enforced and um a kind of encouragement, maybe incentives for developers to actually test new models, like higher density models, um, brownfield sites, optimizing or repurposing existing buildings. It, you know, it, there's a kind of dual aspect. It's about relaxing regulations in some instances and tightening them up in terms of density and preventing sprawl. Mm. You, you do explored new development models in a couple of instances in the talk you gave, um, you'll be being one of them, where 
you took the standard development model in, a, in competition to others and made something much better and, um, and provided a new model to work with. So when you're working with a developer and a, and a client, how do you incentivize that? How did you make that work? Within the same set of rules than someone who could have used the old model, mm. you've found ways to, mm. to... How did you convince them? I convinced them because with the new typology I developed, I was able to get eight additional houses on the site. Mm. So, you know, the tactic of, um, of creating a, a new model, a new typology that's denser, courtyard housing, enabled me to provide additional value. You know, it's a straight up mm-hmm. value add for a developer, when it, particularly when a, a development is within a constrained site and you know you can squeeze in eight more houses than what the master plan anticipated you know that's a very appealing proposition and in a way it gave me leverage to sort of push the other um, aspects of the design that were um, you know maybe less obvious to the developer that they would add value and took more time to prove their value like the additional workspace or the prefabrication but it must also be said that for example at Newhall the overall landowner of the whole Newhall development who are these two brothers the Moen brothers who commissioned the first master plan they inherited the land from their grandfather they commissioned a master plan and they they um, got outline planning permission for the master plan and acceptance from the local planning authority in Harlow that any scheme that was put forward for a phase in the Newhall development, if it was consented by the Moen brothers and the master planners, then it would get automatic planning permission mm-hmm. from the council. So, but their conditions, the Moen brothers' conditions and the master planners' conditions were always that each phase of the development would adhere to the master plan principles and also bring forward new ideas in housing and act as a kind of exemplar project in terms of sustainability and design and space standards. So again, there's this idea of stewardship, that there's a landowner and there's a, there's a, a kind of mechanism in place in terms of the planning parameters that supports the production of high quality architecture. So, it, it, yeah, there, there um, you know, there's so many factors. They're never, they're never very simple equations, but you need that kind of will, the sort of political landscape, the um, planning framework, and then individuals who have committed to that aspiration to raise standards and create new models for for housing that are you know exemplary it sounds as if you're also suggesting that these developers have found that there's a payoff for that investment has that always been the case in the projects you've worked on i think in the projects i've worked on it it has always worked um i don't really the thing is that there's so little experiment and um, you know really forward thinking developments that that come through particularly in the suburbs most of it never sees an architect's hand you know most large-scale um, edge of city suburban development is all done by developers in-house teams and mm-hmm. so 
and and they're based on a formula. They're standard house types. They roll them out across the countryside, mm-hmm. and they don't pay attention to orientation or topography or, I mean, it's also ubiquitous in North America that you just they roll it out because it's a it's a kind of formula based on a business model that's mm-hmm. based on spreadsheets. <laughs> it's not um, it's not based on quality of life or you know the specific nature of each place and each site which is what what um you know sustainable long-term developments and settlements are all about sort of how specific they are and identifiable they are in terms of that place it's about finding or expressing identity and that is what people identify with and feel they belong to a place and it's it's a kind of fundamental thing in terms of human human health and well-being you know really really um kind of primordial qualities of being that are associated with place that you know a typical housing developer wouldn't even know what you're talking about or or even mind because they're only interested in, in selling a product and moving on and, you know, selling another product. It's not about identity and place mm-hmm. and um, security and community. Do you think architects should be more involved in the suburbs? We were talking about the subject with um, Stuart Harrison recently, who's a, an architect and um, commentator from Australia who's written several books on suburbia um, in the New Zealand and Australian mm-hmm. context. Um, and, and about this sort of um, perhaps uh, architects have turned their backs on suburbia a little bit and, and vice versa. Um, uh, developers do not tend to engage architects in, in those sorts of developments. I think that's absolutely true. I think the suburbs have been very unfashionable places for architects to work for probably 50 years. You know, that's it's... it's okay to do a one-off house for a private client somewhere in the countryside um, or to work in an urban setting but you know to tackle the suburbs is I think it's been kind of left to you know we as a profession have neglected the, the suburbs because we're we're um, you know it's difficult it's it's a difficult place to work and maybe we're really romantic and sentimental we think that you know cities are great um that you know land values are higher people invest more in buildings and your rural sites are great because you have the picturesque and the sort of active building in a sort of untouched landscape the places in between of like motorways and slip roads and petrol stations and strip malls. I mean, Robert Ventura and Denise Scott Brown, they tried to sort of tackle those topics in terms of, of their research as a practice. But even even their um, subject, you know, being mainly LA and Las Vegas, are kind of more exotic than the really banal suburban mm. sprawl that you get outside of every city. So I, I think it, it, it is a kind of big topic of re-evaluation and maybe with um, you know digital technologies and home working and maybe driverless cars and 
the fact that people might actually want to spend their whole day in that place, in the suburbs, they might actually start demanding more, that it becomes more like a, a village where you can get everything you need within a five-minute walk, which is kind of the ideal. That's what you get in cities, you know, that kind of access to everything without having to drive around and, um, you know, uh, exploit, you know, non-renewable resources just to do very simple mm. things like buy a newspaper. You've worked on a number of successful projects that have integrated social housing with market rate housing. Um, some of those units, I presume, are sold and some are rented. How have you gone about doing that and what makes those projects successful um, in architectural and in market terms? Well, in London um, and generally across the UK, it, there's a very good policy that's been put in place. Um, I think it started with Ken Livingston as Mayor of London, which was that every new development in London had to be 50% market sale and 50% affordable social housing. You know, very, very aspirational um, policy that came about as a result of the fact that so much of central London was just being given over to private developments and, you know, everybody who works and does the essential jobs in, you know, key workers are being pushed out to the suburbs. So the idea was to make affordable housing um, available in the, in the middle of the city and that's been maintained, but it's been sort of reduced to about 30% between 30 and 40 percent because developers of course complain that they're cross-subsidizing mm. the affordable and th their scheme won't be viable if they have to do are, more than 30 percent. These are affordable houses for rentals or for sale? Well there's there's a mix. Um, mm. In the projects that I've done it's all social rent so they're registered council tenants who pay social rent which is um, I'm not sure what it is but it's it's very cheap it's subsidized rent and it's something like um, 40% below market rent but you know in the UK there's no such thing as rent control too so rent is completely you know out of control it's another problem in the housing picture um, but in terms of integrating the, the market and the affordable it's it's, um, well, the, the principle is everything looks exactly the same, everything's built to exactly the same standard. The only thing that is different is the um, internal finishes. Like instead of carpet on the floors, there's vinyl on the floors. And it, or, you know, instead of wood in the kitchens and halls, there's, there's vinyl. You know, really basic differences. Um, and sometimes the other thing that is maybe unfortunate but maybe pragmatic is the um, entrances like cores to the affordable flats are separate from the cores to the private flats and that's because the private tenants pay maintenance charges and the affordable tenants don't so you know there in a way that's a kind of flaw in the ideal of like true integration you would actually have people of different um, demographics and economic um, spectrums living off the same core but that that doesn't happen at the moment it's about sort of the maintenance strategy it's also about the 
the um, the contract, the contractual conditions that the council has with the developer, social landlord who runs the and manages and maintains the whole development. So they they have to kind of work out a strategy where the you know their financial deal with the council is somehow contained within a structure. Do you, feel, do you feel optimistic about London and cities like it finding its way out of the housing crisis it's found itself in? I mean, we're really struggling with it at, at the moment. I don't know if you read The Guardian or follow the, the, the news from London, but it's, it's a major, major problem because um, young people between age 20 and 40 <laughs> can't afford to get mm, on the housing the ladder. Mm. And what's starting to happen is they're starting to move to cities like Bristol or, you know, it would be good for places like Bristol and Birmingham and sort of other cities that where they can get on the housing ladder and ha have a decent sort of cosmopolitan quality of life. And that's a problem for London because businesses like my business, I, I don't want mm. to lose people. I tend to lose people when they have children, especially if they're from Europe. You know, housing is one thing, schools is another. <laughs> you know, sort of figuring out mm. the education system in, in Britain and in London is nearly impossible. There's so many different kinds of schooling and private and independent and religious and grammar and and you end up having to move to a neighborhood where you can go to a state school and then all the house prices are inflated in the area because of the state school and it's and so I end up losing staff. You know, they move back to Germany or back to Spain or wherever where life is much more straightforward. You buy a flat and you send your child to the local school. It should be that simple. Um, but I think with the new mayor, Sadiq Khan, he is implementing new, quite radical new strategies. There's something called the London Living Rent, where I... Um, I understand it's going to be a form of rent control where you know rent is not allowed to go up by 20% every year, which is what it's been doing for the past five years. Um, and they're really pushing this model of shared ownership where, I don't know if you have it here, where people can buy sort of half the value of a flat and you pay a mortgage on half the value of a property and the... And when you've saved enough money, you can buy out the other half of the mortgage. So, so it just reduces that barrier. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it reduces barrier. the down payment and it makes your mortgage payments mm. lower. But, you know, there's a kind of problem, which is that when you're able to buy the property in five or ten years, its value has gone up mm. with the Out market. Of potentially. Yeah. yeah. So there's a there's a bit of an Achilles heel in that model that that's and, not it, and it gets removed from that social housing market too, because when they all get purchased, you've got to replace Well those aren't social housing. The shared ownership model is private. That's right. not for social tenants who are low income tenants right. basically. Shared ownership is for just um, you know, non-low-income people, um, just sort of regular market uh, buyers. Um, so there's straight-up buyers, there's shared ownership, and then there's subsidized rent, and then there's affordable rent. And so there's means testing in terms of, um, you know, whether you're a, 
um, yeah, on the, the kind of social subsidized end of the spectrum versus a private buyer. But, but the great thing is that it, it is virtually always mixed and um, that's pretty much enforced across all the London boroughs, uh, except for some boroughs like Southwark seem to somehow get around the rules and let developers just claim a prime piece of land next to the Thames and build towers and somehow they it's called off-siting the social housing. Oh, yeah. They find another piece of land somewhere else <laughs> in the borough and cut a deal with the council and you know, yep. manage not to have to provide that mixed that mixed uh, housing on the on the site. But I, I think that shouldn't be permitted. I think if you have a if you have a standard and you have a, a kind of um, policy that's about inclus inclusive urban living that encourages mixing and diversity, diversity you yeah. just have to stick to it. You mm. can't make exceptions. Your um, some of your schemes uh striking in the context that they're within and I think in the, your talk you um, said the words British heritage sort of um, in hushed tones um, you must have some pretty exciting discussions with planners well you know it's interesting because normally the planners are quite open minded like the planning department itself and even the conservation department they are pretty open minded and they actually encourage you know interesting contrasts between old and new and this idea of sort of complementary contrast or having a layering or a dialogue between old and new the the difficult conversations are with English heritage sort of statutory bodies whose entire remit is to really prevent change <laughs> to the to the built environment and um, and sort of local interest groups mm -hmm. they're they're actually the most difficult challenge. It's not the planners themselves, but they the planners have to take on board all of the feedback from all the stakeholders and assess it and provide a summary and then present that summary to the councillors at the planning committee meeting. And then you confront another set of issues because the councillors who are on the planning committee are have political allegiances and they have constituents mm -hmm who might be part of that local resistance. And so they, they're kind of conflicted because in a way they should be taking a, an arm's length overview of the quality of the project, its value to the community and its architectural quality and value. And instead they're, they're actually representing, you know, special interests of a local constituent who would resist any change at any cost. Mm -hmm. so, so there's complexities in the planning process that are problematic and so design review panels are actually crucial to offset that because that's normally a group of experts in design in the built environment, architects, um, you know, landscape architects, people in social policy, you'll have a panel of say six or seven people and they critique your project you know, two or three times before planning. And if you get a very positive response from the des design review panel, that has a lot of weight mm. in the planning committee consideration. So it's, it, it's quite a uh, 
tough battle. It's a long process, but at least that dialogue does happen. At least there's a conversation mm. about design, about history and heritage, and the the impact of change. And you know, some of the the terminology is things like the significance of of the change and the the significance of the significance. You know, starts getting a little bit obtuse, but you you know, they're quite sort of sometimes scholarly academic conversations about the nature of your proposal, what it means in historic terms and its impact on the communal understanding of local history and things like that. So it's it's quite a high level conversation, but it means things take a long time to to get through the process. You advocated quite strongly for beauty in your talk and in your work. And I wondered if it's not too stupid a question, if you could talk to us about how you make a medium or high density project beautiful. Well, it's it's interesting because I've never talked about beauty directly um, before this talk. I, I thought um, it's it's such a uh, I don't know it it's it's a word that's not really used in, for example, in planning contexts or planning committees or you know nobody generally dares speak about the. Um, the concept of beauty or the fact that a, a scheme may be beautiful or it may be ugly. So you're test driving it at the bottom <coughs> of the world. Yes, I thought I'd... <laughs> I thought I'd... I'd um, it was kind of time to start talking about it. But, I mean, some people have said to me that they thought things, you know, my work or certain projects were beautiful and you sort of nod and think, you know, I hope so. <laughs> but um, it, I, I think it's more about putting in the, the seed of thought into commissioners of architecture, such as developers and such as planners and, you know, the, the powers that be that are sort of permitting or not permitting new development, that they should be thinking about beauty and they should be thinking about whether the proposals that are being put forward will be beautiful additions to the streetscape and will, in a way, will they allow people to live beautiful lives? You know, this is a, a kind of quite extreme concept, but... I'll never forget, I heard um, Stephen Fry talk about Atlanta. Um, it was at an architectural award ceremony and he was the keynote speaker and he, you know, such a brilliant you know, actor, comedian voice. Um, and he talked about this horrible experience he had being taken to the States and being given a tour of Atlanta. And, you know, it, it, he, it was such a traumatizing experience because it's the city itself has been kind of developed in the most uncontrolled way and lots of glass towers and these casinos and he was taking a tour of the the casino by Trump the Trump Taj Mahal in Atlanta and he said it was just the most appalling example it, it was sort of the opposite of beauty that it, it was the opposite of the Taj Mahal in India which was an expression of 
absolute love, absolute craftsmanship, absolute universally accepted qualities of beauty, and then this kind of synthetic, tinselly, reflective, plastic excuse for um, a, well, a casino, <laughs> um, not a, a monument to love and uh, craft. And he said, you know, people should, people, too many people live ugly lives in ugly places. And the role of architects and architecture is to allow people to live beautiful lives in beautiful places. And, and I think in a way since the, <clears throat> the, since the modern project, society's expectation of architecture is not that we provide beautiful places where people can live beautiful lives. It, you know, that's sort of, that finished in sort of 1910, or <laughs> it, somehow that association of place with beauty is always pre-20th century. You know, there are very few places that people could say that's a really beautiful piece of city that was built in 1978. It, you know, it's just, <laughs> it doesn't really happen. So, um, it's it's kind of like a, uh, it, it's also a ethical thing. Like I think the the discussion of beauty is beyond aesthetics, and and it it can go deep into the concept of things, the idea of things, the craft in things, the love in things. You know, we universally understand as being beautiful, and so <coughs> I think this is a, a kind of in a way, it's setting a challenge to, you know, uh, developers and um, people working on cities now. You know, let's kind of shift the conversation more towards those things that actually we forgot about for the last hundred years, and and try to define them and think about them and and set them as as goals. You know, you. You know, you can bring it to very simple things like the front door of an apartment building, for example, and the um, like the entrances to our elite court building in in South Kilburn. It's um, it's a double height space, so you walk in the door and you immediately have a sense of space and light and generosity because it's double height and there's a mezzanine and um, you know patterned brick. It, you know it's. It's not as super elaborate, and it's not ornate, but um, and we have green colored tiles and tiles that sort of run from inside to outside, and and you can see through the building to the to the garden beyond, and these these things created a sense of you know graciousness and sort of generosity um, when you enter the building. It's it's this idea that the front door should be. A, um, a kind of uplifting experience just entering a building and when you look at this sort of really mean and completely banal and barren places that people have been designing as front doors of buildings like sometimes it's literally a door and a curtain wall and you just go from outside to inside and you're on one or the other side of a huge sheet of glass and it's a it's a kind of um, deadening experience, and it should be an enriching experience, and it and it should be an experience that shows you 
the care to which the architect has thought about that process of of going from public space to private space, that sense of threshold, that sense of of um, uh, sort of uh, expressing a sense of quality and craft and detail that that is a direct um, you know it relates directly to your experience and and your senses. Uh, and that every one of those moments is an opportunity to demonstrate that care. Yes. So yeah, you've talked every, about, yeah. I, I heard you talking in a video about windows, and you seemed almost like, you seemed to have a deep sense of care for the importance of good quality windows. Is that that sort of ethic? Because it's that moment where you maybe touch the building or you, you operate something. Yeah, I, I mean, windows and stairs, I think, are two of the most important things in architecture because they are the things that you touch. Mm -hmm. You know, you, and door handles, you know, you run your hands up a stair or along a wall going up a stair. So you have a direct tactile experience with the building itself. And, and windows, um, I think it also stems from the... A, a kind of love of arts and crafts houses and the the idea that the the architecture itself becomes the furniture and sort of welcomes you to inhabit its its spaces its sort of interstitial spaces become niches or window seats or um, ledges that you can lean on it, again it's about sort of making the building sort of embrace the body and make the sense of touch something really pleasurable and and that's why I, I try to always insist on timber windows or like composite windows that are wood on the inside because the the feel and the look of a timber window is just an entirely different mm -hmm. thing than mm -hmm. a plastic window or a metal window and it, it's sort of like you have to take the opportunity to to um, sort of claim those things for the um, for the people who will be inhabiting your buildings, whether it's a private house or, or a housing project, both can enjoy and should be able to enjoy the simple um, sensory quality of things like timber mm -hmm. windows. So it, it's sort of it's about sort of extracting the most from the architecture and and that requires a lot of care and a lot of effort and um, you know I think there there is a, a generational change in in architecture where sort of the older generations were you know the machine aesthetic and the high tech and the the idea of buildings as a kit of parts mm -hmm. <laughs> that you assemble and you know it's a kind of yeah, it's a sort of machine aesthetic. I think we've evolved out of that stage, and and there's much more of a a, a, a sense of the importance of materials, of working with traditional traditional materials, the importance of craft. Maybe it's a, a kind of counterpoint to you know the virtual world that so much of our time and our energy and our, our attention is image-based and it's electronic and it's ephemeral that somehow there's a shift that in your actual life you really need to have 
uh, meaningful sensory <laughs> experiences that kind of e express a more human mm. tradition of, of making and of materials. I, I read actually a comment on that recently which sort of said that we're, we're almost craving these very natural, perhaps rougher, more textured surfaces as, as sort of perhaps an antidote to the amount of time we're spending with yeah. the, the slick touch screen. I don't know, it's, it's curious. Probably, I'm, I'm mm. sure some kind of researchers are, are writing <laughs> papers like that. <laughs> on that. I mean, the whole sort of hipster movement and retro decor and all of that, I, I mean, you know, that's slightly, it, you know, it's very much a style thing and a marketing thing and a lifestyle thing. But to a certain extent, it does express the kind of culture of the time, which is that, um, yeah, that people would rather have a brass lamp that's made in a foundry somewhere mm. than, than a kind of high-tech tension wire suspended low-voltage light, you know, that, that, that um, it's sort of reassuring to know that things can look like they're handmade, that people still make things and they still can acquire patina and actually aging might be a good thing instead of a denial of, mm. of aging that sort of more, um, you know, technological architecture and spaces, um, you know, kind of refuse to age and patinate. Thank you very much for talking to us today, Alison. It's a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks. Thank Sorry you. to keep you a little bit long. That's okay. <laughs> That was the London-based architect Alison Brooks who spoke to us at the New Zealand Institute of Architects In-Situ Conference a little while ago. We hope you enjoyed hearing her. We have another podcast coming up for you, hopefully within a month if we get our act together. On behalf of Tash, Arch and Matt, thank you for listening to 76 Small Rooms. We'll be back soon. In the meantime, Matewa. Wa. <laughs>